We've been considering the pursuit of God in our past few sessions, and we've been looking into the pursuit from Psalm 119. Because this is the text that is devoted to the Word of God. And if you have your Bible, please turn there as we will be looking into various parts of this psalm. There's 176 verses there. So we will be looking at quite a few um, verses in, in this psalm. So it's going to be a bit of a Bible study. So be prepared, to, be prepared to look at a lot of Scripture passages. You have been warned. This is a psalm that is basically a meditation on the Word of God. It is a psalm that presents us with a doctrine of Scripture that is fundamental to our faith as Christians. Being a song, there is no formal structure to this psalm. I'm not saying that all psalms are like this. You do have psalms which have a, a, a structure like Psalm 23. You have the shepherd imagery throughout. But this psalm, there's no such formal structure that we can observe. Um, this there's 22 stanzas in this, one stanza each for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, so it is no, um, there's no structure as such to, to the song, but there is an overarching theme, and that theme is the Word of God. And within that, we see various characteristics of the Word of God. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet. Your Word is uh, various things and various characteristics and attributes that we can see in the psalm about the Word. And so as we've gone through it in our previous sessions, I've tried to glean some of these themes about the Word of God. The last time we tried to unpack the theme of our regard for the Word of God. How should we regard God's Word? Because we see a very clear picture in the psalm that the psalmist has a very high regard for God's Word. And if you read this, you'll see that he's so taken up with uh, the Word of God, he, he's constantly appealing to the Word of God, he's constantly asking God to teach him, to show him, to open his eyes. There's various things that he's, he, he's, he's really taken up with the Word of God. And so we tried to paint a picture last time of what a high regard for God's Word actually looks like. And um, just to recap... Um, we said three things. We said that a high regard for God's word is when we live our lives according to his word. We see this phrase, according to your word, occur about 19 times in this psalm. And there's various things that the psalmist wants to do according to your word. And so having a high regard for God's word means that we live according to his word. Secondly, a high regard for the word of God is basically a high regard for God himself. A high regard for God's word is a high regard for God himself. Why? Because our view of God is dependent on the word of God. We cannot get an accurate view of God by ourselves. We need his word. And so that is why our view of God will never rise any higher than our view of scripture. We have to have a high view of the word. Thirdly, a high regard for the Word of God is the regard that God Himself has for His Word. Psalm 138.2 says, You have magnified your Word according to all your name. God Himself has lifted up His Word, and therefore we need to do likewise. We cannot have a lower view of, God, of the Word of God than God Himself has of the Word of God. 
And so if you regard God's word the same way that he regards God's word, that, that he regards his word, then you will regard God highly. And if you regard God highly, you will live your life accordingly. It's pretty simple. And so that's a basic overview of what a high regard for God's word looks like. And today as we wrap up our study of the psalm, I'd like us to go a little deeper. I'd like us to unpack and understand what a high regard for God's word looks like in very practical terms for us. How can we implement a high esteem of the word of God? How can we perhaps increase our esteem of the word of God? And so in our study, we're going to look at three sections really. And So we want to be looking, number one, at the nature of the Word of God. What, what is the single defining characteristic of the Word of God as this psalmist gives us to understand? Number two, what are the implications of the Word of God? Specifically, what does it imply for God? What is, what is the psalm saying about God? What does it imply for God and what does it imply for us? How are we to take what the psalmist is saying and then number three, what are the applications of this? How do we apply it to ourselves internally? And then how do we apply it to ourselves in a public way, externally? So that's basically um, the, the outline that, that I'll be following. And I, and I hope it provides us with a very clear understanding of what a high regard for God's word looks like so that we can all leave today with this clear understanding of what we really mean by a high regard for God's word. And we're going to be spending most of our time in the first two points. So you can think of this as a really, really long introduction with a short application. But I, I believe that the, the, the understanding of the nature of God's word, and I believe that the understanding of the implications of God's word will make the application really, really obvious to us. So having said that, let's look at our first point, the nature of the word of God. Now in this psalm of 176 verses, there are only two verses, verse 122 and verse 132, which have no reference to the word of God. Every other verse, 174 verses in the psalm, actually specifies the word of God in some way, shape or form. So that's 174 times where the word of God is the central idea of what is being spoken about. That makes it very obvious that the word of God is the central idea of the psalm. But what does the term word refer to? What does it mean? What does the psalmist mean when he says, your word? Because if we want to get application to our lives, and if we want to understand implication to our lives, we first need to understand what the psalmist is saying. What is he referring to when he says, your word? And so I would suggest that he is referring to the written word. He is referring to the written word of God. Why do I say that? Well, for one, he keeps using terms that are synonymous with documents. He uses synonyms, similar sounding words with regard to the written word of God. Take a look at verse 57. Now, this is the stanza for the letter Heth. And... Um, as I read, just notice the synonyms being used in this psalm for the word of God. Okay? Verse 57, the Lord is my portion, I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart, 
Be gracious to me according to your word. What do you mean by your word? Verse 59. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. What do you mean by testimonies? Oh, next verse. Um, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. Oh, what do you mean by your commandments? Verse 61. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. What do you mean by your law? Okay, verse 62. At midnight I shall give rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Or what do you mean by righteous ordinances? Uh, verse 63. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. What do you mean by precepts? The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Do you notice the synonyms there? Your testimonies, your commandments, your law, your righteous ordinances, your precepts, your statutes, these are all references to the written word of God. The law is a written document. He's referring to the word of God that was given to Moses and was written down. It was written in a scroll. These are parchments. And I believe verse 130 gives us more reason to believe that this is written down. The unfolding of your words gives light. How can words unfold? They can unfold if they're in a scroll. The unfolding, when I open your word, I get light. That makes sense, right? If I open your word, if I unfold your word, I get light. Because your word is light. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. And so we get the idea over here that the, the, the psalmist is referring to the written word of God. And so when we talk about having a high regard for God's word, we are talking about having a high regard for the Bible. The written word of God. How can we be sure? How can we be sure that this is what the psalmist is saying and that having a high regard for the word of God is not just the spoken word of God, but it's actually the written word of God? Well, let's do a little bit of a Bible study and I have a few verses here. You can turn there if you want, but just listen to me. Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. Exodus 34, 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write. God himself says he is going to write on the tablets that Moses broke. Deuteronomy 31, 19 and 20. Now therefore, write this song for yourselves. Isaiah 38 and 9. Now go write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll. Jeremiah 30, 1 and 2. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. Habakkuk 2, 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision. Inscribe it on tablets. The God of Scripture seems to be really interested in writing to us. The way he seems to work is he, he, he gives people a vision. He speaks to them directly, but then says, write it down. Write it. Write a book. Put it down. Record it. Document it. Why do we think he's doing that? Some people might say, that, um, that was just for the Old Testament saints. Um, you know, that the New Testament is different. You know, it's a new way. It's a new covenant. Well... What is John commanded to do with the vision he sees? Write. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, 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 write. Yes, John has a vision. Yes, John is taken up. Yes. But he is commanded to write. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Revelation 21.5 um, How is Jesus, how, how, is, how is God speaking to his people in the epistles? What is an epistle? It's a letter. It's a written form. How does Jesus counter Satan? It is written. It is written. It is written. What is Jesus' constant rebuke to the Pharisees? Have you not read? Do you not know? Whether, it's, whether it was in the Old Covenant or in the New Covenant, the God we worship is a God who is very interested in the written word. He has given them for a specific reason. And I want us to understand this reason. Why is it important? It's because it's important because God is saying, and we need to understand this, God is saying that we can hear Him through His Word. God is saying that we can hear Him through His Word. We just sung, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. How are you going to see God? Through His Word. And I want to challenge us, and I have been challenged myself, about the extent to which we can actually see God. Why is the written word of God so important? How high is the regard that we need to have for his written word? Turn with me, please, to 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. Keep your finger in Psalm 119, if you can. And we'll just look quickly into 2 Peter 16. We see what the Apostle Peter is telling us about the trustworthiness of the written word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. If you're there, verse 16, Peter's writing to his audience. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we, were made, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor, when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was spoken, which is God spoke. God spoke. There was an audible voice. God spoke. Such an utterance as this was made to Jesus by the majestic glory. And what did the utterance say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is an amazing event. Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus suddenly appears in all his glory with Moses and Elijah and they're having a chat. And Jesus sort of unveils his glory. He's no longer just a human being. He is the Son of God, radiant, majestic, resplendent in glory. All the other three guys are flat on their face and Peter is recalling this incident. And we heard ourselves this utterance made from heaven where we were with him on the holy mountain. And Peter saying, guys, I was with there. I was there. I saw this. Trust me, I'm an eyewitness to this fantastic event. I actually heard an audible voice from heaven which said, Jesus is the Son with whom I am well pleased. I mean, what an awesome experience. What an amazing, transforming, 
experience where the creator of heaven and earth himself is testifying to the legitimacy of his son. And what is Peter saying? Is he saying, oh, I wish you guys would have been there because you really would have believed it. No, that's not what he's saying. Look at verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Why? To which you would do well to pay attention. Peter is saying, I saw this event. I saw Jesus in his full glory. I saw the Son of God shine. It knocked me flat on my face. But despite this great experience, be that as it may, you have the word that is more sure than my experience. I will die to testify to my experience. I am speaking the truth. But you do not need to see that. You can believe that. You have the word which is more sure than my fantastic experience. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well. You would do well to pay attention. Moving on, verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. No prophecy is of someone else bringing up stuff and making up stuff for their own imagination, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit were speaking God's words. And there you have it, that the written word of God is just as important, just as good, just as legitimate, just as experientially valuable as the spoken word of God. To read the written word is to hear the spoken word. Do we appreciate that? When I open my Bible, when you open your Bible, do you see, this is God speaking to me. If, if we don't see that, then we are no better than the atheist on the street, or the skeptic on the street, who says, yeah, I don't know, that's just a bunch of whole hokum. What differentiates us from the atheist? What differentiates us from the Hindu? What differentiates us from the Muslim? What differentiates us from any person on the street? We are people of the book. What does it mean to be a person of the book? Because you believe God has spoken in His Word. And that changes you because God is speaking to me. How can I not be changed if God is speaking to me? If you're in the army, you, you better jump when your commanding officer says your name. You don't have a choice. I don't have a choice if God is speaking to me. And, and having a high regard for God's word means I recognize that the written word over here, the, these words in black and white are sounds in my ear that God is speaking to me. 
I don't need to be with Moses on the mountain. I don't need to be with Peter on the mountain. I have the word. God is speaking to me. It's as if I was right there. When, when the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and I read that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, I believe that. When you read that, do you believe it? Is Jesus the Son of God? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, do you need Him to stand there and say that to you? No. This is the written word. It's the living word. Here's the point that I want to make. If we are only willing to listen to the word of God, if you're only willing to pay attention, if God speaks directly to us in some sort of personal direct revelation, then we are no better than the crowds who'd follow Jesus just to see the miracles. They were there for the show. They were not interested in what Jesus had to say. They just want to see, whoo, so much food. Oh, look at that. Are we interested in hearing from God or are we just interested in an experience? What do we want? Because God is saying, you can experience my word through my written word. How sad and tragic if we are just experienced junkies. Moving from experience to experience without letting the word dwell within us richly. You have, this, you have the parable, the man who built his house on the sand, the man who built his house on the rock. You are my disciples if you do this. If you build your house on the rock, if you build your house on the spoken word, if you build your house on the word of God. I want us to be crystal clear that the, the word of God that is being spoken about is the written word of God. Black and white, documented, text. And that's why we, we, we give so much attention to the preaching of God's word in this church. This is why we guard the pulpit. This is why we actually try to understand what God's word is saying because he has spoken. I'm not trying to unpack and unravel and study because I don't believe God's word. <laughs> I, I, I unpack it because I believe he has spoken. And if he has spoken and if I can hear his, word through, his voice through his word, then I need to understand what he's saying. And so we spend time to, to really pick apart the text and unpack the text. And what is it saying to us? What did it say to the original people? How can we make application to us today? By understanding God's word. What separates the sheep from the goats? My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. The sheep hear his voice in his word. He speaks to his sheep through his word. What's the recurring sentence we see in the message to the seven churches? Let him who has a ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. John is not saying, Lord, but uh, they are not there. How can they hear what the Spirit is saying? Write. Write it. Send it to them. Let my Spirit do the rest. 
to have a high regard for the Word of God is not to regard our experiences or our feelings or our emotions as being more authoritative. The Word is authoritative. I want to read to you from, we read one, one, one confession this morning, and here's another confession from the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1647. And uh, this is what it says. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, concerning all things necessary for man's salvation, concerning all things necessary for faith, concerning all things necessary for life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced by Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. That's, that's 1647. That's like 400 years ago almost. That's a confession that we have, that we believe that the Word of God is the spoken Word, it is the true Word, it is the living Word, it is the Word that speaks to us. Are you just looking for an experience? Or are you genuinely interested in hearing what God has to say? It's a very important question. Because the answer determines what you will do. Will you read the word? Or will you still go to experiences? And so we come to our next point in our outline. The implications of the word of God. And as you can see up there, I'd like to look at Two sets of implications. One is, what does the written word of God imply about God? What does it tell us about God? There are some implications that the written word has about God himself. So we want to look at that real quick. And then we want to look at, what are the implications for us today? How does the written word of God, how does Psalm 119, written so many thousands of years ago, how does it apply to me today? And I hope not that none of these implications will come as a surprise to you. All of them are pretty fundamental. They're very basic. So I won't spend a whole lot of time uh, explaining them, but I will use some scripture from Psalm 119 to back it up. So number one, the implication of the written word implies that God is real. No surprises there. Look at verse 102. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How great is that? You want the best teacher in the world, God will teach you. God himself will teach you through his word. His word is sufficient to teach you. Verse 102. I have not turned aside from your ordinances. What is that? The law. The written word. I have not turned aside from that because you yourself have taught me. God has taught him. And here again we can see that we can have a direct experience of God, with God, from His Word. You yourself have taught me. Number two, again, no surprise, the written Word of God implies that God has indeed spoken. He's spoken. He has actually said things. He has actually breathed out things. He has actually had a conversation. We've already been through a whole heap of texts which demonstrate that God has spoken and He wants us, He wants His... Um, speech to be recorded, so I won't go through that. Number three, if God is real and he has spoken through the written word, then the implication is very clear that the written word has authority over us. 
The written word is authoritative in our lives, meaning that the word defines the boundaries within which we operate. My feelings don't dictate those boundaries. My experience doesn't dictate those boundaries. The word of God dictates those boundaries. Now, that's not to say my feelings and emotions are not important. They are. Very important. Very, very important. But my experience and my observations and my my emotions do not dictate anything to the word. The word dictates everything to me. I operate within the boundaries set by the authority of the written word. My experiences don't define my theology. The written word defines my theology. Number four, God expects us to hear him through his word. God expects us to hear him through his word. That is why he has given it. That is why time and time and time and time and time again he has said, write, write, write. Verse 72. This is great. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Verse 102, I have not turned aside from your ordinance, like we said, for you yourself have taught me. Verse 135, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing holy, holy, holy. How do we see God here? Here, here, I can see Make your face shine upon me and teach me your statutes. When God teaches his statutes to you, you will see him. You will see him as precious. You will see him as lovely. You will see him as holy. You will see him as everything you need to sustain your life at that point. And moving on. There is an expectation within the psalmist that he will see God. There is an expectation within the psalmist that he will hear God. You yourself has taught me. You, you, I've, I, I'm, I'm paying attention to the words of your mouth. The psalmist believes that he will hear God. Are we willing to believe that? Do, do I believe that I can, I can meet God in his word? Or am I looking for some sort of other special revelation? Unless God shows me who he is, I'm not going to believe. Unless uh, Jesus appears to me right now, you know, I'm not going to believe. Because God says you can see him in his word. Will you spend the time to see him in his word? Will you spend the time to see his beauty? Will you spend the time to get his understanding? Because you can. He has said it. If those are the implications of the written word of God, what are the implications for us today? Well, clearly we don't need a special revelation. We don't need a private audience with God in person because he is there. Here's my private audience. I unfold the pages of the word. 
Sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer. How? Why? Just because of a, 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 an emotion? Am I stirring myself up in prayer just so that I can reach God? No, no. I, 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 I stir myself up based on the written word. I know I have access based on the written word. God has said it. God has said that we have instant access to the throne room of heaven through Christ. What more do we need? And I say this because there's so much out there about contemplative prayer, mindfulness, some new age spiritual discipline by which we can access God. No. We don't need any of that. We just need His Word. The written Word is all that we need. What, what special revelation can God give me that He hasn't already given? If you think that God, you need something more than what the Word has said, you need to read the Word. Because the Word is sufficient. It is profitable for life and godliness and everything that a man needs to be and come to know the things of God. Second, if we are speaking, seeking special revelation, then we are actually undermining the written word of God. Now why do I say that? I say that because if God expects me to hear him through his word, why do I have a different expectation? If God is saying that he has spoken, if God has commanded people to write, if the, if the word is saying that you have the more sure prophetic word, why do I need something other than the word? And I'm saying this because the temptation, even I have this own thing in my own head, is, oh, maybe, you know, I just wish that God would speak to me. I'm, I'm in the middle of this quandary. Uh, this, this family thing is bothering me. This work thing is bothering me. This illness is bothering me. I wish I could just feel God's hand touch me. No, no, no. Read the word. You will feel the hand of God touch you. You will see the face of God shine on you. If God is saying that faith comes by hearing... And hearing the word of God, why do I need anything else? God is saying that we have the prophetic word made more sure to which we would do well to pay attention. The moment we say that we need something other than what God has already given, we are implying, we may not say it, we may not mean it, but we are implying actually that whatever God has already given is somehow inadequate or irrelevant or insufficient for what we need. We're saying, I know you've given me, I know you've spoken, but I need something more. No, you don't. You just need the pure milk of the word. Try that first. Try that first. Look into that first. Open the word first. Dust off the covers. Bring the Bible out from the shelf. Read it. Lastly, to undermine the written word is to undermine God himself. I'm not saying that to shock you 
Oh, I'm not saying that to be controversial, but that is the direct implication. If God has spoken, and I want something else other than what he has spoken, then I am really raising my fist against God himself. Am I not? I'm saying, no, no, you're, uh, yeah, I'm just, it's just not doing it for me. It just doesn't cut it for me. I, I just need something more. No. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I cannot disregard what God has spoken. Clearly there are some very significant and serious, very serious implications that the written nature of the Word of God has for us. If we are to have a high regard for the Word of God, then we must take these implications really seriously. And as we will see now, there are some very com compelling applications for us as well. And I believe this psalm has some internal applications and some external applications. When I say internal applications, I mean what's our attitude towards, what should be our attitude towards the Word of God? How should we relate to the Word of God? How should we um, understand it? What, what, what's the attitude that we should have towards this? What's our perspective? What's our state of mind? And then I want us to look at when nobody's looking, for, number one is when no one's looking, what is our attitude to the Word of God in private? And then externally, what's my attitude to the Word of God in public? When I find myself in strife, when I find myself in trouble, when I find myself in the storms of life, what is my attitude to the Word? And so I'm going to look at three in each. I'm sure there's much more that you can take out, but I'm just giving some really basic ones. And I think that these, these should help us. I'm sure you can find more, but if, I'm sure that if we, if we take on these, these, these three in each side, these six, um, we're going to do well. And so we're going to move from the internal to the external, and so be prepared to do a bunch of speed reading, because I'm just going to spit out a whole lot of verses from the text. Number one, internal attitude toward the Word of God. The Word should be our deepest longing. There should be a hunger a pining, an aching, and hankering after the word of God. Look at the verse, following verses. Verse 20. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. Verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. Verse 82. My eyes fail with longing for your word. 123. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Verse 131, I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Why does the psalmist long for the word? Why should we long for the word? Because that's where we meet God. That is where God speaks to us. And if we love God, if we are truly his sheep, then we will long for him to speak to us. I mean, this is not rocket science. I long for the word because I long for my savior. I want to be in touch with him. I want to be in constant relationship with him. I long for his word. 
That's where I hear him. I, he speaks to me. If I truly regard his word highly, then I will long for it desperately. Number two, internal attitude towards the word. The word should be our greatest treasure. Again, look at a few verses with me. 14. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Why again? Why, why is this complete, you know, he's so consumed with the word. Why does he say that the word is more precious to him than great treasure? Why? Again, because that's where he finds God. Why should the word be our greatest treasure? Because that's where we find the most precious commodity in the universe. God himself. Could anything be more beloved, more cherished than God himself? Here's where the word speaks directly to our hearts. What is the most, what is the thing we long most for? What is the thing that is constantly occupying our minds? Is it the word? Do we treasure it? Do we have such a high regard for it that we are almost dead without it? Number three, the word should be our utmost delight. You've seen this already, but again a few verses. Verse 24, your testimonies are also my delight. They are my counselors. 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. 77, may your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. And on and on and on he goes. The law is his delight. The ordinance are his delight. His word, the Lord's word is his delight. Why? Why should the Lord's word be a delight to us? Because again, it's his word. God has spoken in these words. Is my delight in some... How could my delight be in anything else? How can my delight be in anything else if God has spoken to me? Could anything be more thrilling than hearing God speak to us? We saying, you know, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. Here's where the rubber hits the road. If all that thrills my soul is Jesus, then all that Jesus said should thrill my soul. Is it? Does it? Let's turn our attention now to some of the external attitudes, how the written word should affect our public lives. We've just seen how the written word should affect us privately. How should it affect us publicly? Number one, we should be obedient to the word amidst persecution. 
Some more verses, verse 23. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. 51. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. 61. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. 110. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. And on and on he goes. He keeps saying, I find myself in this really hairy situation, but I have not let go of your word. I find people plotting against me and wanting to bring me down, but I have not let go of your word. I have found myself in dire circumstances, but I have not let go of your word. What is that saying to us? How many people do you know who when, the, when, when really everything has gone to custard, they walk away from the Lord? And I would venture to say, with, with some degree of accuracy I think, that if we have a high regard for God's word, that will keep us standing firm. I'm not trying to belittle anyone's personal circumstances. I'm not trying to disparage or in any way diminish the pain that people might have gone through. They may have gone through a lot of pain. Children have died, spouses have died, fortunes have been lost, families have disintegrated, people have walked away from the Lord. Oh, if God existed, why is this happening to me? My personal experience then starts to dictate the reality of God. It happens. I'm not saying that, that um, you know, that somehow the person's experience was not so dire. But what is God saying? Princes are plotting against me. People, what the psalmist is saying, the wicked have encircled me, the wicked have laid a snare for me, redeem me from the impression of man, that I may keep your word. There is a, there is a desire over here to remain faithful in the midst of, of great, great persecution. Why? Because God has spoken. God is real to me. If, if, it doesn't matter what happens now. I am not going to stand before a government. I am not going to stand before a committee. I am not going to stand before my neighbor. When I die, I am going to stand before Christ himself. What then? I mean, if you think of all the Reformation martyrs, who were burned at the stake for proclaiming the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that went against the Roman Catholic Church, were burned by Bloody Mary. Um, what did they do? They went singing. They went singing to the stake. Will we? Are we singing in the midst of our persecution? Hear the word of Pastor Richard Wormbrand, I'm not sure of how many of you know him. He was a Romanian pastor who suffered greatly at the hands of communists. And this is his view of the word of God. Despite being thrown in jail, despite being beaten, despite being imprisoned, despite all the, all the horrible things that were done to him, this is what he says in his book, The Midnight Bride. I quote, When the Messiah comes, many will try to play their own songs on his harp. When the Messiah comes, 
Many will try to play their own songs on his harp. The results will be tragically dissonant. On the Messiah's harp, you must play his own song. The song of his eternal glory with God. The song of his humiliation as a babe in a manger. The song of a life in sorrow, opposition and poverty on earth. The song of his being whipped and crucified and buried. And finally, the song of his resurrection, ascension and enthronement in heaven. Then the harp will give a beautiful sound. His congregation will shine like a sun. That's a high view of God. That's the high view of the word. That's what kept him going. Despite severe, severe, severe persecution. Is our view of the word high enough to keep us standing firm in the midst of storms? Or will we walk away because we don't really believe that this is the word of the living God? If this, is, if this is his word, can we walk away? Number two, we should look to the word for comfort amidst trial. If God has spoken in his word, if God has revealed himself through his word, if his word is the only avenue for us to meet with him, and if the word is the rendezvous point for us, where else should we look for comfort? Who else can comfort? A few verses. There's heaps. Let me just give you a few. Verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. 28. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. 50. This is my comfort. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. 52. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord. And what do I do? I comfort myself. Is, are we, is, is this just saying that only the psalmist could find comfort in the word? Are we saying that somehow he has some special in with God that only he and special people and people who are saints can find comfort? No. Anyone who is the child of God can be comforted by the word of God. Verse 165. Those who love, I love this. Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. How beautiful is that? 165. Those who love your law those who love your written word, those who love what you have spoken, have great peace. Are you looking for peace? Are you disturbed? Are you at unrest in your heart? Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Why does the psalmist look to the word for comfort? Why should we look to the word for comfort? Because this is his word. It's his word. It is able to comfort us. It is able to convict us. Your word is a two-edged sword that pierces through my soul, dividing bone and marrow and just going deep. That's the power of the word. The 
Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control what? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Where do I get that from? Did someone make that up? No, that's the word. That's God's word. It comforts me in the midst of great, great, great sorrow and trial. I learn of God's love for me in his word. I learn of all that he has done for me in his word. I learn of how he has pursued me in his word. I learn of how he will hold me in his word. Apparently there's a Peanuts cartoon. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Peanuts. Charlie Brown, Lucy. And Charlie Brown and Lucy are having a conversation and Lucy is saying, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole world. And Charlie Brown says, um, but I, I thought you had inner peace. She says, I, I have inner peace, but I still have external obnoxiousness. And that can be us, can't it? We have inner peace, but somehow outward, it doesn't translate. Somehow when, 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 again, when we are in the midst of trial, when we are in the midst of personal crisis, we don't look to the word for comfort. We look somewhere else. But if this is the word of God, this should be our comfort. This, my ballast of assurance, we sang, didn't we? Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. Number three, external attitude towards the word of God. We should be provoked amidst evil. Let me look with me one last time a few verses. 53, burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. 128, therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. 136, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. 139, my zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. If we love the word, if we recognize that this is God's word and that he has spoken, how should it affect us when we see evil around us? We should be cut to the core. Not that we look upon ourselves as more self-righteous. Ooh, look at me, I'm holy, or you sinner. No, no, no. But we should be just praying that the Lord would save. When we see evil around us, and we do see a lot of evil around us, what is our refuge? Does it, does it make us long for heaven? When we look at evil around us, does it make us pray, come Lord? What is our reaction to the evil that we see around us? Why is the psalmist provoked? Why should we, provoke? Why should we be provoked? Because we cannot bear 
to see the word of God being treated as some sort of commonplace thing. And so to, to summarize all of this, we should have a high regard for the written word because that is how God speaks to us. And if this is how God speaks to us, then undermining the written word of God undermines God himself. And so therefore we need to be spending more time just saturating ourselves with the word. Knowing God, knowing his will, knowing what he wants from me. Knowing, just saying, Lord, speak to me. I can't understand this thing. Show me. And if this is how God speaks to us, then our whole disposition to the, to the written word needs to change. It should be our joy. It should be our deepest longing. It should be our greatest treasure. It should be our greatest comfort. It should be our greatest delight. And just to, just to end, if you're saying, look, you know, I just don't feel that way with the word. I, I just, I, I'm not, I get what you're saying, but that's not my experience. Well, you know, you need to be born again. Because when God makes us to be born again, He gives us a new heart. And that new heart loves His Word. That new heart loves Him. That new heart wants Him. That, that new heart cannot do without Him. And so in trying to access Him, and trying to find Him, that new heart reaches for the Word. Because then the heart finds God. Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. May the Lord cause us to be consumed with a burning passion for His holy word. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, what, what a joy it is to know Lord, that you have spoken to unworthy creatures such as us. What a privilege to learn that you actually have something to say to us. Not just in judgment, but in love, in intimacy, reconciliation, drawing us to yourself. Father, we pray that you would draw us to yourself through your word, that in your written word we would find you and see you and behold wondrous things out of your law. Father, that we would be so caught up, Lord, in the truth and reality of your word that, Lord, earthly experiences and feelings, Lord, would be directed and guided. Father, if we weep, let us weep because of your word. If we are moved, let us be moved because of your word. If we are thrilled and joyful and delighted, let it be because of your word and not because of our own imagination. Let us know you. Let us seek to be like you as you have said in your word. Change us to be more like your son, the living word in whose name we ask. Amen.